0: Tick tack. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast.
1: So, Eugene, do you think Winston Peters can survive his latest political scandal? What if I must? You know, the smoking cigarette, that video of him allegedly smoking a fag in the vicinity of a no smoking sign at Otago Uni.
2: You know, Adam, Winston has been around the block a few times. He may just weather the storm on this one. I thought headline writers missed a trick, though. Ooh, what you got? Peters sets spluttering
1: campaign light. <laughs> election chances go up in smoke. Mm. Attempt to embarrass Peters runs out of puff. Actually, that one's not bad. No, it is, really. Anyway, hearty mai, welcome. This is Tick Tick, Stuff's 2020 election podcast for Wednesday, the 9th of September. I'm Adam Dudding.
2: And I'm Eugene Bingham. Tēnā koutou katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about the election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic.
0: Tēnā atū. 2020.
2: Got your holiday planned, Adam? Christmas? No, Matariki, middle of winter, seven sisters appearing in the sky, you know. Well, there's a few hurdles to get over yet, not least of which is that it's only
1: an election promise at the moment, Labour's backed by the Greens of course. So, you know, let's see what October 17 brings, eh? Hey? before you start packing your PJs and toothbrush for your long weekend.
2: True. But it it was an interesting pitch to voters on the first proper day out campaigning, wasn't it? I guess it was Labour and its leader Jacinda Ardern feeding into that sort of feel good or as good as we can feel and see the other parties that opposed it come across as a bit curmudgeonly.
1: I'm used to being offered new roads or the planting of a zillion trees or a crime crackdown. But a a public holiday, can't can't remember the last time one of those was on the table actually. It is, of course, a season for big promises and big claims, not all of them entirely true. So we thought it was a good time to have a look at the art of political fact-checking, and later in the show we talked to a New Zealand journalist with 40 years of experience in
2: newsrooms around the world. But first Eugene, what's been happening? Well, national leader Judith Collins was in the Hawke's Bay yesterday, and she promised to spend up to half a billion dollars upgrading the hospital. She also took a swipe at the possibility of a purely Labor-Greens coalition after the election, saying it should, quote, scare the bejesus out of people. Collins was striking back at Finance Minister Grant Robinson, who has repeatedly attacked the lack of clear costings for Nationals' election promises. Jacinda Ardern
1: was in Tauranga, where she talked to small business owners, among others. Labor released its small business package, promising to reduce bank fees for PayWave and car transactions, and to extend the small business cash flow loan scheme.
2: Meanwhile, New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters, he wants to help prisoners rejoin society with a bit more training and support. He made the pledge in Southland, where he's planning to get behind moves to save the TY aluminium Smelter while he's in town. By the way, did you see his table tennis skills on the news the other night? Nice bit of spin there. All right, it's been a while since we did this, so
1: I think it's time to bring back our election playlist, our occasional series where we feature songs from campaigns past or songs with a political twist. This one came out in 2011 and is in the finest traditions of Kiwi protest songs. So the video starts off with a montage of politicians over the years. Yes.
2: Create the gap between work and welfare. There is a growing gap between rich and poor in this country. Well, I'm making enough to be comfortable. And then it really launches into a powerful commentary on poverty and disenfranchisement. One
1: day, somewhere, yeah, that's what we used to see. Now we black out, and white, so the future's great. Especially
2: among youth, it's home Brew, led by rapper tom scott with listen to us right so that song is all about
1: challenging politicians which feels kind of appropriate for our main feature today yeah we wanted to take a look at the art of political fact-checking in what some people reckon is a post-truth world. So this is an age when representatives of the President of the United States can talk about alternative facts and keep a straight face. And then there's all the conspiracy madness which the coronavirus pandemic has only fueled, adding layers of confusion and distortion for voters to wade through. So it's no wonder that, especially since 2016, there's been an explosion in
2: the amount of fact-checking. In the United States, there's almost an entire arm of journalism dedicated to it. Some sites are set up specifically to do it, But more traditional media outlets are doing it too. Since 2010, the Washington Post, for example, has had a fact-checker section, and it has a famous Pinocchio rating. One to four on how big a whopper a statement is.
1: And actually, since 2018, it's not just one to four. They added a bottomless Pinocchio. That's a rating for a lie that's been repeated more than 20 times, even after it's been debunked, which seems kind of specific. Uh, So guess who that was invented for? Anyway, here at Stuff, we have something called the Whole Truth Project set up for this election, where our journalists drill down into dodgy facts and come back with the truth. Uh, We've already looked at various claims around the effect of rental law changes and stuff about whether we have enough ICU beds to deal with COVID, whether New Zealand was actually slow to adopt
2: masks, and so on and so on. Yeah, because if there's a time when it's more important than ever for politicians to tell the truth, it's during an election campaign, right? Especially one during a pandemic.
1: Yeah, so we got hold of somebody who really cares deeply about facts. He's made a career out of them. Hi, Peter.
0: Morning, Adam. How are you? So Peter Bale is his name and... I'm uh, a New Zealander and a journalist, but I haven't been a journalist in New Zealand for about 30 years. And I've been stranded here under lockdown and really re-engaging with New Zealand journalism, which has been great. So Peter went
2: overseas in the 1980s initially to work for Reuters in jobs which took him all over the world. He's also worked at the Times Online in the UK, for MSN UK, for CNN and for two years he was Chief Executive of the Centre for Public Integrity. That's a non-profit which pulled together the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ICIJ. You might know them as the network of journalists most famous for breaking the Panama Papers investigation in 2016, exposing financial and tax irregularities on an epic scale right around the world. So he's got some serious journalistic chops, but he hasn't forgotten his roots either. Is
1: it true that you started out in the good old Western Leader, a suburban newspaper that still gets delivered to houses in Auckland?
0: Yes, I did. And every time I go to Te or West Auckland, I think I've been down the street before to cover somebody's 50th wedding anniversary or the Rosier Road School or a road protest over a a road being sealed, which has now been sealed for 20 years. Yes, I did. And I learnt a tremendous amount there and I practise it every day. I mean, I've never never lost some of the lessons that I learnt from working in the Western Leader. In
1: the introduction, we're mentioned a few of the places you've worked, but as CEO of the Centre for Public Integrity, you oversaw one of the biggest investigative journalism operations in modern times with the release of the Panama Papers. So what was that like?
0: Well, it was really, you know, it was a job of the team, the ICAJ team, and of course the ICAJ network, which has, uh, and certainly had then, about a thousand journalists working in a cooperative manner to get that story done. And that was the real achievement, really. It wasn't my achievement. It was It was theirs, this uh, creating a network effect from independent journalists, all of it fact-based, of course. Uh, and, of course, it was also a very good reminder about the value of whistleblowers, which is something I've continued with since since then. You know, that kind of information does not come about other than somebody choosing to share it with journalists. And so we really need to think about the origin of where information comes from as well. We, we got
2: you on today because we wanted to talk about political fact-checking. And I guess we should start with a, a definition. How, how do you define it?
0: Well, fact-checking is something, of course, that some people would argue should be done in the general course of journalism, and that is really its origin. I mean, the the doyens of fact-checking have have been the New Yorker. Um, There's a a guy there called Peter Canby, who's just retired as the head of their fact-checking department, and they are famous for the accuracy and the care that they take with what they're about to publish. The sort of post-fact or post-broadcast fact-checking is a real phenomenon, particularly since 2016, when you've had somebody uh, as the President of the United States and certainly as a candidate who was a pathological liar. You know, Trump lies like other people breathe. I mean, the, the, the whole Washington Post thing with the Pinocchios and the lies, in a sense, we've become so normalized to it that we forget how extraordinary it is to have somebody in that position, particularly once he was elected, living off a, a sort of perversion of the truth. You know that was really brought home to a lot of people immediately after the inauguration.
1: It, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains: Wait a alternative that facts.
2: Alternative facts. For
0: when the... Kellyanne Conway said her remarkable Trump, thing Trump, about Trump, having Trump. quotes alternative facts close quotes. And that alarmed a lot of people and in itself really triggered this kind of uh, or a huge growth in this uh, post-broadcast fact-checking and political fact-checking.
2: And and globally, there are organisations doing a very good job of it, aren't there? You've mentioned the Washington Post, but it's not just news organisations, is it? There are some sites that are set up dedicated for this.
0: Absolutely. And I think they are doing a good job. I'm just worried that nobody's listening. Uh, I, I think we've got to such a critical phase at the moment that we're really where, you know, Hannah Arendt in her 1951 treatise on totalitarianism talked about the possibility that everything was possible and nothing was true. And we're really there. And the kind of people who exploit this brilliantly are the Russians. You know, Vladimir Putin is a former KGB agent. Uh, Disinformation and misinformation has been a Russian tactic since Tsarist times. He lives and breathes this, or Russia lives and breathes this, and it's given them tremendous political reach and power that they wouldn't have had Otherwise, in what's called sort of asymmetric war or asymmetric di- diplomacy. And so uh, the soft underbelly that an open media and Facebook and so on provide us for the spreading of disinformation has really exposed our inherent sort of societal weakness, I think. So yes, there are very good organisations doing a lot of this work, but uh, but I worry sometimes that just nobody's listening.
2: Mm-hmm. Globally, there's a lot of it going on. What about here in New Zealand? I just want to pick up on one example that we talked about before this interview there was a newsroom journalist, Mark Dolder, wrote an interesting Twitter thread in which he pulled apart comments made in an interview by one of the Plan B proponents and epidemiologist Simon Thornley. You've sort of cited that as a good example of fact-checking, but what about it makes it good fact-checking?
0: Yes, let's break fact-checking into a couple of different things. There's the fact-checking that journalistic organisations should do on their own work ahead of publication. And, of course, the cuts in journalism, the end of sub-editors, all of these kinds of things has made the kind of natural workflow of fact-checking much more difficult. Then you've got the fact-checking, which is fact-checking journalism after publication, which I actually believe is often damaging to journalism itself, but that's a a slightly different subject. And then you've got the fact-checking organisations that question things that politicians say and are they right. Mark Dalder, in my opinion, is a one-person fact-checking machine in New Zealand, and I'm incredibly impressed with what he's done, partly because what he's been doing under COVID is effectively using fact-checking as a public service mechanism To point out when people are talking bollocks. And, you know, bollocks is incredibly dangerous in this circumstance. It kills people. You know, all around the world, there are newspapers spreading disinformation, either deliberately or accidentally, which is more misinformation, in my opinion. But they're literally killing their readers or putting their readers at risk. And I think Mark's piece, looking at the uh, Auckland epidemiologist, you know, he's breaking down Saying what he's he's doing a a job of uh, that really the the um, I think it was Jack Tane, probably could or should have tried to do on air had he been better briefed and pull apart some of what appear to be facts or what appear to be assertions based on fact and just say what are the facts that underlie what Simon was actually saying so I, I think Mark Mark uh, spinoff is doing a very good job in this area stuff has done some terrific work on uh, conspiracies for example so the, the trouble is post fact fact checking is post-fact and it will never reach the number of people that the original broadcast got to. And it's much harder to distribute. So really it would be great to have a feed of Mark and other people's fact-checks and have them distributed with the same prominence, say, on Facebook or Twitter as the original misinformation.
1: Can you name a few of your, I guess, greatest hits of the fact-checking world? Actually, I'll just check it. What's that noise that we're hearing It's a bird somewhere, Oh, it? It's at it's your, your place, is it?
2: Not at my place. Do
1: you have a canary it's, it's... there, Peter?
0: <laughs> Only one in my nearby coal mine, no. no it's <laughs> okay. not coming from my place.
1: That's right. then. means it's not on your recording, so that's all that matters. I was just going to yeah. worry about it.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I, I remember an, ex- an excellent fact check. So just to, to give you an example of how the New Yorker works, a friend of mine was, was, the, a part of, and, and was involved in a story with the New Yorker and the fact checker called him to ask him uh, whether four years ago he had been wearing unmatching shoes to a meeting... At the Guardian, which of course he was, he couldn't remember, but was but said it was probably right. Um, you, you know the the, the post fact stuff. The um, Daniel Dale from CNN does an extraordinary job in trying to fact check Donald Trump in real time, but I think Trump has partly through alternative facts and just the sheer weight of repetition and the undermining of everybody who reports him, whether it's you know in, in the most recent week, of course, Fox. Um, There's such a toxicity about correcting Trump now. I'm just not sure anybody is listening anymore, and that scares the pants off me. Well,
1: I was interested when there was that very recent interview that went viral, the Australian journalist Jonathan Swan was Hmm. fact-checking Trump in, in real time about his egregious nonsense about America having the best COVID response on the planet.
0: Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the US is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't, you
1: can't do that. You have to go by... I mean, it was weird. bracing, it was entertaining, it was, it was sort of fun. Um, but a part of me wondered whether anything very important was going on. I mean, we were just learning again, weren't we, that Trump lies a phenomenal amount.
0: Yes, and I think it's sometimes worth reminding reminding ourselves that this is the President of the United States lying pathologically and constantly. One of the biggest problems that we all face in this is the phenomenon of whataboutism, which is essentially saying, well, Trump is bad, but God, Stalin was even worse. Or Stalin Hmm. was bad, but Hitler was even worse. You know, it's this kind of ludicrous comparison between unmatching things, and if you say it enough, it does start to become quite bamboozling. But I think the the second Gulf War, the the invasion of Iraq, and the deception and lies that were told both by Tony Blair and George W. Bush about uh, weapons of mass destruction, and the media's complicity in that, was a turning point where trust in politicians was lost to a huge extent. I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. Because, you know, I remember watching Tony Blair in Parliament uh, in the UK. Tonight, British servicemen and women And I just thought, this is too big a lie to tell. It cannot be a lie. It has to be Mm. correct. He couldn't possibly, so just more fool me. You know, I believed at that time it couldn't possibly be a lie. And I think part of our deep mistrust in both media and in politicians dates from that.
1: There are other examples, though, where there are sort of great lies that have flourished and grown, even though they are being fact-checked and debunked in public at the time. I'm thinking, for example, of the the Brexit bus and that false claim that Brexit would save the UK £350 million a Mm -hmm. week. I mean, there were plenty of figures in the media saying this is just untrue at the time, and yet they still take hold. You know, what's that about? That's
0: right. One of the things that's happened in the news media since I've been in it since you know 1832, is the <laughs> predominance now of commentary instead of news? And you see this for example in the New Zealand Herald: the dominance of what are essentially hot takes by talkback jockeys, ill thought out, often change the day the day after or even the same day that they appear, and the prominence that they're given when they're very often fact free but full of opinion, and they may be surfing or just <laughs> on the edge of something actually correct, but essentially they're assertions and that has fed into this kind of tribal nature that we're all in at the moment, where each of us have our own facts and we stay within our own fact boundary. Huge sections of society are no longer inquiring about the true information or the accurate information. They want information that reaffirms their tribes. Um, And I I think it would be really awful if New Zealand really falls too far down that. I think Radio New Zealand, for example, and TVNZ have a really critical role to play in that. Uh, And it was very interesting to see this week, or last week, in fact, in the New Zealand On Air report on um, trusted media that TVNZ, the the six o'clock news, is still extraordinarily trusted. And so I I think that particular outlet has a uh, huge value in still creating some kind of national conversation where facts can be sacred, debate can be had, but you don't get into this complete tribalism that has infected the UK media and and the US media and made true dialogue impossible. And it's also made communications of things like public health emergencies really yes. difficult. So I, I guess we we sort of embarked on this conversation
2: about political fact-checking, focusing on politi- politicians, but what you're saying is actually media has got, is complicit in this as well. It's got a, a big part to play in what's, in what's going on.
0: Yeah, and it's not that there's necessarily ill intent, but one of the reasons why media has become tribal is cost. Commentary is a lot cheaper than actual news reporting but also because clicks come from a tribal world, comes from anger. We know from Facebook that its uh, engagement is stimulated and driven by fear, anger and hunger. And so that is the same for media. So it's no wonder we've become more tribal. It's just I think those of us with some responsibility in it have to try and put the brakes on that a little bit and make sure that there is common knowledge and some agreed facts. And I I think this has been critical. I, I admired what I saw in New Zealand during the first lockdown immensely because although... I thought to some extent the media in New Zealand was uh, generally very compliant with the government message. It was also performing an incredibly important public health role in encouraging compliance while also explaining what the facts were. Uh, I think that's been lost slightly. I think the the media here has slightly overreacted to national uh, and the the rather naughty little Jerry Brownlee nods and winks that there's something else going on here uh, and has become a little more aggressive. But at the same time, it's very interesting with a leader like Jacinda Ardern, who appears and comes across in an incredibly authentic way that challenging her becomes very difficult.
1: Earlier, you were saying you place the Second Gulf War as, as an important time in the, the collapse of truth and, and you know the rise and the need for fact-checking as well, I guess. Mm. And this notion of fact-checking does feel quite modern, but is there a deeper tradition around fact-checking?
0: Yes, and it's very much a US thing. I mean, you know, American journalism can be incredibly introspective and somewhat self-regarding, but it does have immense traditions of accuracy and impartiality. One of the sort of overriding ideas in US journalism is that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And that actually comes from the first Jewish Supreme Court judge in the United States. It was his phrase, not a journalist, but that is one of the sort of driving forces behind US journalism. Those ideas of that there's an ethical basis and there's a need to get to the truth, are relatively new. There are, there are ideas that came around in the in the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s, rather than, you know, there were as many scandal sheets as anything, as there are now, in a sense, uh, in the in the mid-1880s. But as you started to get journalism being turned into a profession, fact-checking became extremely important in the United States. And, and then it also goes to transparency, things like correcting your errors and how you correct them
1: Just on the the business of calling politicians, because this is technically an election podcast, calling politicians to account for their lies. I mean, it's kind of a truism that the way you can tell a politician is lying is because they're they're talking. Mm. They spin facts and they they will mislead by omission and they will cherry pick examples that go against the general truth because it suits their argument and so on and so on and so on. So what are the red lines? When is it time for the fact checker to jump in.
0: Well, I think the, this guy Daniel Dale on CNN is doing a very good job of trying to do it in real time.
2: Anderson, this president is a serial liar. I counted preliminarily more than 20 false or misleading claims. I want to go through a whole bunch of them quickly because I
0: think uh, it, it is extremely difficult though. I mean, he has called out in real time just in the last week some of the deep untruths about uh, Trump's visits to Kenosha and uh, where, where, where the guy was shot on the back. The, the trouble is it just it all see it's being put in a partisan light. I think in New Zealand it's a really interesting example because you have a prime minister who comes across and pr- presumably is because I think she she, she couldn't really affect it as deeply authentic. And that's one of the reasons why I think she is so clever at using Facebook. Mm. Uh, you know, I've been really fascinated by her ability to go over the top and around all news media and scrutiny. And I think that nobody in New Zealand has quite got the measure of how to hold Jacinda Ardern to account in a public forum mm. without appearing to badger and heck to her, which does not go down well with the public. I think we need some sort of subtle, clever person who is incredibly well briefed, to hold her to account in a good way. That that incident recently with the the guy from the Herald questioning her and who was then accused of badgering her, mm-hmm. it was entirely legitimate of him to ask very serious questions and for her to have a good answer. But the way that those uh, daily press conferences have been held where the journalists are invisible but noisy has not done anyone any good in terms of journalists not appearing like a baying mob. Having a camera pointing the other way would be a very positive thing. Huh. But somebody, we need we need a... I grew up in New Zealand in an era when a guy called Simon Walker uh, interviewed Rob Muldoon about Russian submarines. At least 12 armed with ballistic missiles. That statement is absolutely correct. Indeed, Prime Minister. Just but a moment, let me answer, please. Prime Minister, and this is not, not a statement to that say I was questioning you about. Higher. With respect, Prime Minister, this yeah. is not the statement that I was questioning you well, about. With, with re- I would like with, to with put one respect, last point to you. With equal respect, you are not asking me the questions that you were kind enough to put to me so that I could get technical advice on. Prime Minister, now, and just really absolutely challenge the Prime Minister in ways that i have never seen before. And progress progress I can tell you that is almost literally one of the reasons I became a journalist was watching Simon hold somebody like that to account. I don't think that that method works at all with Jacinda Ardern. And so you've got a really interesting moment when you've got a prime minister who has high levels of perceived authenticity and whose brand is all about authenticity. So hectoring her is not the way to do it. You need to be as well informed with her as her and somehow, uh, you know, I just don't know who's going to do that yet.
1: But a lot of the communication she's doing with the, the public is entirely unmediated by the media anyway. Correct. So it doesn't matter how nimble you might be, you can't fight a Facebook live stream. I mean, should somebody be fact-checking each of her evening Facebook posts um, sort of straight away and saying what may or may not have been correct about them?
0: That's an extremely good idea. I think if it could be done in a subtle and clever way, yes, but not on a just a kind of reactive talkback jockey kind of way. Because so much of the stuff about Jacinda Ardern, when she is criticised, is stupidly personal, quite misogynistic. So you can um, be critical of them, and but just just taking the piss out of her doesn't work. We've talked a lot about Jacinda Ardern, but
2: we've also got, got an opposition here which is doing a, a job, uh, and sometimes it seems uh, straying into. Um, well, certainly with the Jerry Brownley press conference and so on, they, there was some questionable. stuff going on there. What's the fact checker and journalist's role in taking on an opposition party?
0: Well, I thought actually uh, a lot of journalists did a really good job in taking Jerry Brownlee on over that really, really dangerous, I'm just asking questions bullshit. I thought that was an unbelievably irresponsible thing to do at that time when New Zealand had achieved so much, when there was effectively cross-party support for that particular approach on COVID. And then anything to undermine that when you've got anti-vaxxers, 5G conspiracy theorists, anything to feed that by a politician of his seniority is incredibly dangerous to me. And I thought the media did a very good job actually of calling him out on it when he said, I'm just asking questions. You know, I thought it was really important to call him on that. And he retracted some of that within 24 hours, but the damage was done. Mm -hmm. But I think anything that edges forward into feeding these conspiracies and feeding this tribalism, I know why they do it. But it's really dangerous at the moment. In the middle of a public health emergency, you know, it'd be fine if it was normal democracy as we know it, our normal election. But in a public health emergency, access to clear information is really important. And I think New Zealand's been kind of blessed in a sense to have, you know, the guys from Otago, the epidemiologists, people like Susie Wiles and so on, having really good access to journalists and vice versa. Mm. Um, I, I don't know whether you've seen. There's a very interesting piece overnight about the loss of trust that the United States feels in the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, you know, which has historically been one of the most reliable and important organisations in the world, it's now got something like a a trust rating of 58%, as opposed to 86% three, four months ago.
1: This is an episode about fact-checking, so we briefly interrupt this broadcast to say we checked the figures from the CBS poll of which Peter Bale speaks, and where he said trust in the CDC had fallen from 86% to something like 58%. That is actually fifty-four percent.
0: You done? No, oh, yep, yeah. yep, yeah, as you were. And this is how these important institutions at a critical moment can be brought low. This issue is not new. You know, these issues about facts and and the the crisis of information is not new. I I was looking last night at at Don DeLillo's book White Noise, which is all about the creation of 24-hour television and how that changed the pace of news information. This was a pre-internet book. But I also noticed the Talking Heads song Cross-Eyed and Painless from 1980. Which is, you know, one of its best lyrics which i'm definitely going to crank up again on spotify is facts are simple and facts are straight facts aren't lazy and facts aren't lame facts don't come with points of view facts don't do what i want them to uh and i found that a terrific reminder that we are dealing with something old as well as something new absolutely we won't ask you to sing that but yeah please don't but thank you very much for joining us peter bowell no worries thanks very much eugene thanks adam
1: it was the Tick Tick podcast for Wednesday the 9th of September. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Peter Bale, Catherine George, Carmen Parahi, Patrick Kruitz, and John Hardervelt and Carol
2: Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms if you want to. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick@stuff.co.nz. at stuff.co.nz. Also, if you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website stuff.co.nz. We will be back later in the week. Ma